and take your Bibles and turn to the passage that was read for us. We just read a portion of the passage this morning, I think only the first 11 or 12 verses. And uh, this morning I'm going to attempt the impossible and cover all of chapter 14, 40 verses in whole. Uh, But with God, all things are possible. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're continuing in our series on uh, in First, First Corinthians Gospel Council in an age of compromise and confusion. And for the last few weeks, we've been looking at the latter part of First Corinthians where Paul gives to us a, a block of teaching. Uh, and all of this block of teaching, what he calls the tradition, is all focused on what we might call worship matters. They're all things that pertain to the worship life of the church. And when I say worship, I mean more than just our assembly on a Sunday morning. Worship involves our service. We serve God through worship. And so anything in the life and the ministry of the church, Paul is focusing in on these things. Beginning at chapter 12, he began to talk about or write about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And we spent some time in chapter 12 and discovered that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are these gracious enablings that the Lord gives to us so that each of us can serve him in the unique ways in which he has gifted us. One of the things I stress is is that, that all of the gifts of the Spirit, except for two, tongues and the interpretation of tongues, can actually be seen in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when Paul says that we are the body of Christ and to each one of us has been given a manifestation of the Spirit, Essentially what the Apostle Paul is saying, saying to us is that we, the church, reproduce on earth the ministry of Jesus Christ. And then last Sunday morning we looked at chapter 13, the great passage about love, that love is the greatest, that love is the thing that remains. The greatest of these is love. These three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And clearly the Apostle Paul is punching through this point that you can have all of the gifts of the Spirit, you, you can be a very gifted person spiritually, but if you don't have love, if you don't minister in love, then your gifts mean absolutely nothing. In Paul's words, just, just noise. That's essentially all it really is, a, a clanging cymbal, a noisy gong. And so love then is the lens, if we could put it this way, Love is the lens. Ministry in love, ministry for love, is the lens through which we should look at chapter 14. And let me say this to you. We need a lens for chapter 14 in order to focus and understand what it's saying because this is a difficult passage. Some things in the Word of God are just ultra clear. Other passages in the Word of God have a murkiness to them, and we need additional help to understand. This passage, just for your information, is the one passage in God's Word that has perplexed me the most in the 51 years that I have been a believer in Christ. Let me also say this. This passage requires four or five messages in and of themselves, not just one. So please understand we're going to be hovering above the clouds, so to speak, looking down, bird's eye view, and I'm just going to be touching on certain important truths in this passage. I cannot get into every detail in the passage in the time that we have today, and therefore many of your questions will probably not be answered. There are certain things I will not be able to touch on. 
I'm sorry if you're mad at me. Well, hey, I'm leaving at the end of June, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> Let me also say this, that there will be some things that I will say quite emphatically today, things that I am very sure of. There are other things I will not place as much emphasis on because, as I said, there are still some things in this passage that are, are murky. But I want to begin by talking about the guiding principles that the Apostle Paul gives. And you'll notice these principles are actually found in the first verse. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. First principle, follow the way of love. Now, I've already stressed that. And 1 Corinthians, of course, stresses it too. But this is the lens through which we should look at this passage. Follow the way of love. This is the way in which we should use the gifts that God has given to us. If in the exercise of our gifts, it's something other than about loving others and showing love to others, then we're out of line. We are not in the will of God. Now, the problem of the Corinthians is they had a problem with their attitude and they had a problem with their actions. Their attitude was that they were all caught up in, the, caught up in their gift, particularly the gift of tongues, and this became like the all-important thing. They had an attitude issue, and it, it shows in this passage. The second thing is there was a problem with their actions. Because of the attitude that they had, their actions became disorderly within the church. Their actions weren't benefiting the church. Their actions were causing friction within the church, even within the worship of the church. So we have to follow the way of love. Let's look at this passage through that lens. Number two, he says, desire, eagerly desire spiritual gifts. We should be eager to have these gifts. We should be eager to use these gifts. We should be eager to see the gifts of the Spirit flourish within our life within the life of a local church. And in chapter 12, verse 30, 31, the Apostle Paul actually qualifies what he says here in chapter 14. He says in verse 31 of chapter 12, eagerly desire the greater gifts. And again, the greater gifts because we're, we should be following the way of love. We want those greater gifts that have a, a, a more profound spiritual edification impact on the whole church. Those are the gifts we should be desiring according to the Apostle Paul, which leads to principle number three, and it's, 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 it's cloaked here in the last line of verse one, especially the gift of prophecy. The point here is the edification of the church. Now, Paul uses the gift of prophecy as an example of the principle. All through the passage, he points out that prophecy has a way of, of, of really building up the church. He mentions that in verse 3. Everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. So, so Paul sees prof, prof, prophecy as one of the greater gifts. And it's one of the greater gifts because it contributes more to the edification of of the church. This is Paul's overarching concern. Look at verse 3. Everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. Look at verse 4. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. You see, the emphasis is on the church. Look at verse Verse 12, so it is with you, since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in the gifts that build up the church. 
Look now at verse 17. He's speaking, referring here to them speaking in tongues, and he says, well, you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other man is not edified. You're edified, but the other isn't. The emphasis is on the other, the importance of edifying the other. Verse 26, what shall we say then shall we say, brothers, when you come together, everyone has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. So let's look at this passage through this lens of edifying the body of Christ. Paul in these verses is more concerned and more focused on what we do when we assemble than what we do when we're alone by ourselves in private and praying. He's going to talk about private prayer. He's going, about, he's going to talk in a sense about the prayer closet, being alone with God. But his primary concern is when the church gathers, that things should be done for the benefit of the church, and therefore everything needs to have understanding to it, and there needs to be edification. Now, he gives, he focuses in chapter 14 on on two of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The gift of speaking in tongues and the gift of prophesying. And he contrasts the two. And you'll notice this all through the passage. He's saying tongues do this, but prophecy does this. Tongues is this, but prophecy is this. He contrasts all the way through. So what I wanna do now is I wanna talk about speaking in tongues and we want to define what speaking in tongues is. And so as we do this, we're gonna talk about what tongues is, and if you could put the next point up on the screen, what tongues is not. I'm gonna go back and forth here. What tongues is, what tongues is not. Now we're first introduced to tongues in God's word in Acts chapter two on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples who were gathered in Jerusalem in the upper room. They were praying. And the Holy Spirit fell upon, upon them, and we read that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them or gave them utterance. So speaking in tongues was the, as it were, the miracle that happened at the inauguration of the Christian church. This was really the beginning of the mission of the church, and a great miracle happened on that day. That's our first reference to speaking in tongues. Let me try to give you a, def, a, def, a definition, and please understand that I'm going to be quoting from numerous individuals today, and so I'm not going to say this is the person I'm quoting or that's the person I'm quoting. That would just simply add to the time, but not everything I'm saying comes from my own words. Here is a, def, a definition that I found very helpful. The gift of tongues, or speaking in tongues, is the spirit-energized ability to pray, worship, give thanks, to praise God in a language other than your own. It is a spirit-energized abil ability to pray or to praise God in a language other than your own. It's not a language that you learn. It's a language that is given to you. It is a language imparted and crafted by the Holy Spirit. And in speaking in tongues, then, that language that you use in prayer or praise transcends the limitations of your, of, the, of your own vocabulary and thoughts and desires. The key is this, it is prayer. And it is prayer directed to God. 
let's, make, let's be very clear here. In this passage, it's clear. Tongues, speaking in tongues, is prayer. Verse 2, for anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to, to who? To God. Now, when you speak to God, what do we call that? Prayer. Prayer. You're not speaking to men. It's not a message for men. It's not a message for people. It's something that is said to God. Now, this is important because there's so much confusion here. If, if we don't understand that speaking in tongues is prayer to God and not to people, then it leads to confusion and misunderstanding as we look at this passage. So tongues is prayer. Tongues is not evangelizing. What do I mean by that? Well, some people look at the passage in Acts chapter 2. Holy Spirit comes. They begin to speak in tongues. And what happens in the end? 3,000 people are converted. They are evangelized. And so some people assume, well, what this means is that the disciples were enabled to speak in the languages that they had never learned, and there was this massive international crowd there in Jerusalem. And so, so each one of the disciples then was sharing the gospel in a different language to the people who were there. That's not what happens in Acts chapter 2. That is a misunderstanding of what happens in Acts chapter 2. But that misunderstanding is very pervasive within the church. Let me give you an example of this. When the Pentecostal movement started in the early 1900s, they believed that they were, they were going to be able to go overseas as missionaries to go to China and to India and Japan specifically. You can find this in the magazines that were originally written from 1900 to 1908, 1910. And they really believed that they would go to China and when they got off the boat, they'd be able to communicate the gospel perfectly in Chinese. Same in India, same in Japan. And they went there and it never happened. It never happened. Pentecostal missionaries still needed to go to language school, and they still needed to learn the, the, the labor of learning another language. It's not what happened. This was believed not just within Pentecostal circles, but in most Christian circles at that time, that the gift of tongues was a supernatural ability then to learn a language, to know a language, and you wouldn't have to do language study so you could share the gospel of Christ. That's not what happens in Acts 2. In Acts 2, when tongues, when, when they began to speak in tongues, the crowd gathered because they were praising God. It was so noisy, as it were. It was, a, it was an event that attracted the attention of the international crowd in Jerusalem. And the people were amazed when they heard the speaking in tongues because the disciples were primarily men and women from Galilee, and they said, we hear these Galileans speak in our own language the wonderful works of God. They were praising God. They were praising God. It wasn't communication directly to the people. It was communication directly to God. And in an indirect way, of course, people heard. The same thing happened in Acts chapter 10 when the Holy Spirit came upon the, the household of Cornelius, the Roman, and they all believed. And when they believed, they, they began to speak in tongues and the Jewish believers who were there with the Romans, the Gentiles who had believed, 
They said, we hear them speaking and magnifying God. They were praising God. So all that happened in Acts chapter two with the tongues was the attracting of a crowd. Peter then got up and spoke to the crowd. And remember, it was predominantly a Jewish crowd. So while they had different languages that they knew, they all shared a common tongue. And Peter preached the gospel to them in the language that all of them knew. Now, there are others who say that the miracle of speaking in tongues is not speaking. It's actually in the hearing. In other words, you're speaking, but people hear you speak in another language. That's not the case. The emphasis was not The miracle was not in the hearing, the miracle was in the speaking. So this is the primary purpose of speaking in tongues. It is speaking to God. Again, verse two, they do not speak to men, but to God, look look now at verse 14. For if I pray in a tongue, you see that? The emphasis is on prayer. Now let me just, I'm going to go down a rabbit trail for just a moment. Because when you get into the latter part of the passage, Paul talks about the interpretation of of tongues. If you've ever been in a church where someone speaks in tongues and then an interpretation comes, and the message of the interpretation is directed to the congregation and not to God, then that's wrong. That's wrong. I've seen this happen. Someone speaks in tongues, someone gets up, and they begin to interpret. This is what the Lord wants to say to his people. No, no, no. Tongues is his people speaking to God, not God speaking to his people. I think that's a very important point. So tongues is prayer. Tongues is not evangelizing. The next thing we need to say is, according to verse 4, that tongues is primarily for the edification of ourselves, not for the edification of the church. Look at what he says in verse four. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. So it's not for the whole church, as it were, the speaking in tongues. It's for the recipient alone who receives the gift of tongues. Now, in verse four, It is very possible to read verse four in this way. The one who speaks in tongues, all he's doing is edifying himself. What a selfish Christian. It's possible to read verse four as sort of a subtle rebuke of the apostle Paul to the tongue speaker. Ah, but he who prophesies, he's so much better. He edifies the church. I actually used to read verse 4 with that frame of mind, but I don't anymore, and let me share why. We need to think, think about this. When I study the Bible by myself, when I read the Bible, when you read your Bible, when you have your devotions, hopefully every day, and you open the Word of God and you're all by yourself, why are you reading the Bible? I'm reading the Bible to edify myself. I know that I get spiritual encouragement. I know I get comfort from reading God's word. When I pray by myself, I'm doing it for my own spiritual well-being. Most of us, when we come to church on a Sunday morning, you're listening to me, not because you're so much concerned about everybody else getting a message from God, but you want God to speak to you. You want to be edified. 
And so it's not wrong to edify ourselves. Matter of fact, it says in the book of Jude, verse 20, that we are to build ourselves up, we are to edify ourselves in our most holy faith. Every gift of the Spirit edifies the user of the gift. It's, it's not wrong to edify ourselves unless that is an end in itself. Self-edification can actually help others. I'm hoping that through the edification I have received this week as I've studied 1 Corinthians 14 thoroughly, as I've opened up different commentaries and studied and, and thought through the verses and thought through the meaning and read different authors and what they have to say, that was all for my personal benefit and edification. And I'm hoping that through my edification, my self-edification, that as I share with you now, you too will be edified and built up in your faith. If we think that, that self-edification is wrong, then, then well, look, look further at verse 5. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues. Why would Paul say that if he didn't see some benefit in it? Paul was positive concerning speaking in tongues. Look at verse 18. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Paul thanked God for this. He was grateful to God for this gift. He valued the gift. So it's not wrong that tongues are for self-edification. It's only wrong if that becomes an end in itself or if it becomes a showy kind of look-at-me-speak-in-tongues kind of edification. Now I want you to notice verses 13 through 15. For this reason, the man who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says. Now Paul unpacks what he means by that. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. My mind doesn't really understand, but, but there's something that's happening in my spirit that's positive. So what does he say? Verse 15, so what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit and I will also pray with my mind. Paul says, I will do both. I won't just pray in tongues. I will actually pray in the language God has given me, the language that I, I understand. Interesting. He then says, I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. If, you're, if you are praising God with your spirit, now he gets into the influence on others, so we won't go there yet. But I want to just park here on verses 13 through 15 for just a moment. We think that if our mind is not engaged so that we can cognitively and rationally grasp what is occurring, then the experience is useless. I used to think that myself. I don't anymore. I believe Paul disagrees. He asks this question in verse 15. What shall I do? And he says, I will do both. I will, I'll pray with my spirit and I will pray with my mind. I think this is important. That the apostle Paul believed that a spiritual experience beyond the grasp of the mind was still a profitable 
beneficial experience, one that is glorifying to God. Let me quote from Gordon Fee. I quoted from him last Sunday morning. Gordon Fee just went to be with the Lord a few months ago. He was a Pentecostal theologian, and his commentaries are excellent, highly admired throughout the evangelical world. He writes this, contrary to the opinion of many, spiritual edification can take place in ways other than through the cortex of the brain. Paul believed in an immediate communing with God by means of the Spirit that sometimes bypasses the mind. And he says in verses 14 and 15, which we just read, Paul argues that for his own edification, he will have both, but in the church, he will have only what can also communicate to other believers through their minds. And so we come back to this emphasis on the church, verse 16. If you're praising God with your spirit, how can one who finds himself among those who do not understand say amen to your thanksgiving? In other words, if you're, if you're going on in tongues and you're sitting beside me and I, I'm listening to you, well, I don't know what you're saying. And when I'm praying with someone, I, I like to say amen when I'm praying with, some, with some, someone. I want to affirm what they're praying through an amen. But how can I do that if I don't understand what is being said? You see, the emphasis here is on, is on others. It's on the church. And then he adds, verse 17, you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other man is not edified. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all, but in the church, verse 19, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So again, tongues is prayer. It is for personal edification. It is not a gift that is used in evangelism. The gospel is not communicated through speaking in tongues. And it is also not an uncontrollable thing. Because when you go over now to verse 27, you'll see this. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Again, the emphasis on to God. But the key here, the point is, is that the persons who speaks in tongues can control when to stop and when to start. That's what Paul is saying. Okay. Enough about tongues. We'll get back to tongues in a moment. Still more to say. But let's talk about this gift of prophecy or prophesying. What it is and what prophecy is not. I'm indebted here to Sam Storms and some of the definitions that he gives of all the writings that I have read. Um, He seems to clarify things the most, at least for me. And he writes that prophecy is speaking in merely human words, that's important, merely human words, something the Holy Spirit has spontaneously brought to mind. So prophesying then is not all of a sudden God comes into my head or whatever and and kind of takes over my vocal cords and that what I say 
is the word of the Lord. He says, no, that's not it at all. Now, in one sense, that may have happened to the Old Testament prophets, but in the New Testament understanding of things, prophecy is not that. Rather, it is speaking in merely human words, something the Holy Spirit has spontaneously brought to mind. So God may bring something to my mind and something to my wife's mind at the same time about a certain person, and we want to go and encourage that person. But Andrea is going to express it in her human words, in her way. And I'm going to express it in my way, even though the impression we have may be the same. So it's human words. Now, in one sense, it is based on, and I'm going to use this word carefully now, it is based on revelation. So in verse 30, he says, and if a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should stop. Now, I use the word revelation, and when Paul uses the word here, I don't believe he's talking about revelation in the sense of the the scriptures being revealed to us. The scriptures are a revelation from God. They are infallible because they come from God. I believe, I agree with what John Piper says here, that prophesying is not infallible scripture-level authoritative speaking. But it is human words expressing what God has placed on the heart. It's not a hunch. It's not a supposition. It's not an intuition. It is a report. It is a human report of what God is impressing on the mind and the spirit. I think each of us have had this experience before when we were in prayer. We're praying, and, 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 and there are certain thoughts that come to our minds when we are praying. And we, sometimes we try to ignore those things, and they come again. And we realize that this, this is God impressing something on our hearts and minds. That's why when I sometimes get alone to pray, if I have special times, I, I will take a little pad of paper, and when I'm praying, I'll stop and write things down because I, I sense that God is impressing certain individuals or thoughts on my mind. And so this is what is being spoken of here. So when I teach God's Word, when I preach God's Word, That's different because teaching and preaching is always based on a scripture passage, a scripture text. But prophesying is based rather on the Holy Spirit spontaneously bringing something to mind. And because we are all fallible beings in the way that we receive what God gives us, in the way that we think about what God has given us, and in the way we speak about what God has given us. What we say, if we're speaking and sharing an impression God has given to us, doesn't carry with it the authority, the same authority as the Word of God. Prophecy isn't me going up to to someone like Tom and saying, Tom, I have a Word of God from you. It's infallible, and you better believe it, brother. No, no, no. But it's going to Tom saying, you know, Tom, I just sense that that perhaps here's a concern that you need to think about. Just have this impression that you have a need in this area and maybe this is what God would have you do. You see, it is not on par with God's word. And I say that because look at verse 29. Two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. They need to pass judgment on what is said. There needs to be a discerning, okay, is this, is this, we need to test this. 
Is this really 100% from God or not? And therefore, this kind of prophesying is very different from what we read about in the Old Testament writings. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, as Paul concludes his letter, he's sort of speaking like a machine, machine gun, and he gives them some one-liners right at the end. And he says, don't quench the Spirit. Don't put out the Spirit's fire. Then he says, don't treat prophecies with contempt or don't despise them. And then he says, test everything. Now, why would the Apostle Paul have to write to Christians and say to them, if prophesying is a gift of the Spirit, why would he have to say to them, don't despise those things? Don't hold prophecies with contempt. probably because there was a misuse of prophesying in the church. And the people who were despising prophesying within the church understood that no prophecy should be held on par with Scripture. Probably also because there were some people who, in the exercising of their gift, were becoming a little bit crazy, a little bit off the wall, in how they were sharing things, like the example I just gave concerning Tom. And so many in the church would go, whoa, 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 we don't, we don't want that kind of stuff. Let me try to il- il- illus- illustrate this. Um, I remember when I came to the Lord many years back, there was quite a move of the Spirit, and there were quite a few of us who came to know the Lord, and I remember incredible sharing times. Do you, you know what I mean? where people would share things that God was doing in their lives, kind of an open testimony meeting where different ones would get up and talk about what God, what God did. And there were times in those, those meetings were so encouraging. People would stand up and say, this is what you know, God's done in my life, or this is an answer to prayer. And, um, or they'd share a burden, and then people would pray for them. These were incredible sharing times. But I can remember, I can remember someone getting up in a meeting and going way off track, and off topic, and starting to talk about things that they just wanted to talk. You know what I'm saying? And it, and, and, it, and it brought something discordant into the meeting, and it destroyed the sharing time. And I think that's why Paul is saying, don't despise prophesying, because that might have been the experience that many of them had. Paul says here that prophesying essentially does three things. Look at verse 3. Everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their, for their number one, strengthening or upbuilding, encouragement. That's the second thing. Encouragement here could also be translated exhortation. The idea here is, is that when this happens, it's sort of like a it's sort of like the coach of a team in the locker room sort of encouraging the team to get out there and win. It also means this that when true prophesying happens, it will not discourage God's people. It will encourage them. And it will be for their comfort, he says as well, for consoling them. In other words, I think this verse shows that prophesying then is not about predicting the future. I remember a, a young woman who we counseled years back in our former church, and uh, 
she had experienced spiritual abuse in this church. The pastor of the church had laid hands on her at the front of the church and prayed over her, and she was just a 10 or 11-year-old girl at that time. And he gave this so-called prophetic word. And it was all about her future. And he actually had it time-stamped, like this was going to happen at such and such a point in her life. And she came to us very, very broken-hearted because everything that this pastor had proclaimed in prophecy and the people of the church affirmed never happened. It never happened. You can imagine how discouraging that was for her. Prophesying is not about the future. It's about encouraging and building others up in the present. To summarize this, it is, it is to others. It's a message to others. It's something that God uses to encourage, and it's something that edifies the church. Now, let's go to our next, our next point. In the ministry and worship life of the church, the focus must be on corporate edification. And I believe that this is exemplified in the ministry of the Apostle Paul when he writes in verse 6, Now, brothers, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? In other words, if I'm just speaking in a language that you don't know, how is that building you up in your faith? Again, the focus in Paul's ministry was on edifying the church. Now, the next thing he talks about is that this is also exemplified in lifeless things or in musical instruments. Verse 7, even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the flute or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? Now, that's an important line. We know that In ancient war, a trumpet or a bugle would be used. Even as early as the U.S. Civil War, one one of the most important persons on the field of battle was the guy who blew the bugle. Because there were 26 different distinct sounds that a bugler could make, and each one of those was a different order that was being given to the troops. Now you can imagine if the guy who's blowing his way on the trumpet is trying to give the sound to retreat, but he gives the sound to charge forward. You can imagine the disaster that that will cause. And that's the illustration that Paul is using here. In other words, these examples, these analogies that Paul gives, they are arguing this point that communication in the church has to be intelligible. Speaking needs to be understood, which takes us to our next point. In the ministry and life of the church, there must be understanding. Look at what he says in verse, in verse 9. So it is with you, unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. That's an important word, key word, meaning. Verse 11, if then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and he is a foreigner to me. 
Paul's concern is that when speech happens in the church, that there has to be something intelligible to it. There has to be meaning behind it. And in verse 23, he envisions the whole church speaking in tongues. They, this is what they were probably doing, this, doing this sort of simultaneous cacophony of everybody speaking in tongues at the same time. And he says, if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and some who do not understand or some unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? It causes chaos and confusion. Unintelligible speech, speech leads to confusion. And so beginning at verse 22, Paul, or actually verse 20, Paul imagines or he envisions an unbeliever coming into the, the worship time of the church. Look at what he says in verse 20. Brothers, stop thinking like children in regard to evil be infants, but in your thinking be adults. In the law it is written, and now he quotes from Isaiah chapter 28. Through men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign for believers. Not, uh, sorry, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for believers, not for unbelievers. So he has a concern here for unbelievers. And he quotes Isaiah chapter 28. And somehow he's applying what Isaiah says, verse 21, through men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me. Through this verse, he's applying this to what's happening in Corinth. Now, in order to understand what Paul is driving at here, we need to go back even further than the prophet Isaiah. And Deuteronomy 28, verse 49 is a key verse. Deuteronomy 28, verse 49 says, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away from the ends of the earth, like an eagle swooping down, a nation whose language you will not understand. Now what's the context of that, of that verse? Well, this goes back to Israel finally entering into the promised land. And God speaking through the prophet Moses is envisioning Israel in the future violating the covenant that God had made with her. And so God, in a prophetic word, was saying that he would chastise his people by a foreign army. That if Israel would ever violate the covenant that God had made with them, that God would allow a foreign army to come in and then all they would hear is the languages that they had never learned. Foreign tongues would be spoken. He was saying that confusing and confounding speech would be the sign of God's judgment against his own people. This is exactly what happened because Israel violated the covenant that God had made with them. And so God sent the Assyrians first of all in the uh, 800 years before Christ. And then 600 years before Christ, the Babylonians came in as well. And Israel was finally surrounded by those who spoke in languages that were foreign to them. It was a sign of God's judgment. Interestingly, in Jeremiah chapter 5, God speaks and says, O house of Israel, 
declares the Lord, I am bringing a distant nation against you, an ancient and enduring nation, a people whose language you do not know, whose speech you do not understand. Now, we might say, okay, that's the context of Isaiah chapter 28 and Jeremiah 5. It's about the Assyrians and the Babylonians coming in and speaking in a language the people had never learned. But what in the world is Paul getting at? Why would he, why would he quote this here? Paul actually sees a principle in what Isaiah was saying, and he applies that principle to the Corinthians and to us. Principle is this. When God speaks to a people in a language they do not understand, it is actually a form of punishment. Punishment for unbelief. God spoke to his people through the Babylonian tongue and through the Assyrian tongue. It was a punishment for their unbelief. In other words, the language signified his anger. It's as though God was saying, okay, you won't listen to me, you won't follow me, you won't obey me, you won't believe me when I'm speaking to you in a language that you understand? Well, I'm going to pronounce my judgment on you now and I will continue to speak to you, but it will be in a language that you do not understand. Incomprehensible, unintelligible, This kind of speech would not guide or instruct them or lead them to faith and repentance. It would only confuse them and only destroy. And so Paul's saying, if an unbeliever comes into your meeting and that unbeliever is very curious about the Christian faith and he wants to know and hear more about the gospel of Christ, but you are just speaking in in tongues? What are you going to do? You're going to drive those unbelievers away, he's saying. You're going to give them a sign. A sign that is negative. A sign that is entirely wrong. He's saying because they have come into your midst, they are inquirers. They want to know something about the living God. Which shows that their hearts are not so hard that they that they have reached the point where they deserve a severe sign of judgment. This is why Paul stresses interpretation so they can understand. Then they will hear and understand the prayer and the praise. And this will not be a direct message to them, but at least it will be interpreted. At least it will be understood And so prophecy is a sign of God's presence with believers. Verse 22, tongues then are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for believers, not for unbelievers. Verse 23, if the whole church comes together, everyone speaks in tongues, and some who do not understand, or some unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But, but, verse 24, if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everyone is prophesying, There's intelligible speech. He will be convinced by all that he's a sinner and he will be judged by all and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare so he will fall down and worship God exclaiming, God is really among you. They will hear and they will understand and then they will respond in faith and embrace the gospel and believe
So to summarize it then, tongues were a sign. But he's not talking about the function of tongues. Rather, he's talking about the negative result. Tongues would be a sign because of the abuse and the misuse of tongues. And so he's saying, don't do this in church. You're running the risk of communicating a negative sign. You're running the risk of driving people away. Intelligible speech always leads to edification and salvation. Well, our time is almost gone, and so I'm tempted here to skip the last point, but I'm going to go through it anyway. In the ministry and worship of the church, everything should be done in order. And if you read now verses 26 to 33, you will see here that the Apostle Paul gives some rules for speaking in tongues. He gives some rules for prophesying in the church. And he gives some rules in terms of the conduct of women in the church in the context of speaking in tongues, but mostly in the context of prophesying within the church. And if you have any questions about that, you will come to see me afterwards. Let me conclude then with what Paul says in verse 39 with our four takeaway points. Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and an orderly way. Be eager to prophesy. Isn't that what we want? To be able to speak from the Lord things that will encourage and build up the church? And then secondly, don't forbid speaking in tongues. There is a place for it, according to Paul, as we've already seen. Number three, make sure we build up the church. And number four, we need to follow the rules because worship must be orderly and things should be done fittingly and in an orderly way. Let me leave you now with just a, a little quote that'll go up on the screen, which I think applies to this message. The time before and after worship can be the best time for worship and ministry. What does this mean? Before we actually worship, before we actually engage in worship, as we come into the auditorium on a Sunday morning, and after the official worship has ended, there's always those moments after worship, either before or after, and it doesn't have, even have to be here at this church, per se. It can even be in our community groups when we meet to discuss God's word later. There should be an opportunity for us to use this time before and after, to actually engage each other and perhaps even to huddle with each other and to encourage each other. And can't prophesying happen then? And words of wisdom be spoken then to people? And prayer that gifts of healing might be granted upon those who are suffering and carrying burdens? I think that's what Paul is saying. That's the kind of thing that needs to happen if there's any burden that I have, if there's any disappointment that I have, is that this doesn't happen enough. Because so often after our worship times are done, we think worship is over, and we go out the doors. Or we just engage in chit-chat. Instead of saying, you know, there was something in this morning's message that really spoke to me. Can I share that with you? Will you pray with me about this? Or someone saying, God spoke to me today, and 
I need, I need to pray about that. I need someone to pray for me. And in that context then, words are spoken to each other and to God that build us up and encourage us. The time before and after worship can be the best time for worship and ministry. Would you stand, please? Father in heaven, please take this difficult passage and apply it, we pray, appropriately to all of our lives and to the life of our church so that things will be done in a fitting and an orderly way and the edification of the church will happen continually as we meet with each other and meet here to serve you. We pray in Jesus' name. We have just uh, prayed a prayer of consecration in our song where we want God to take us and, and use us. One of the lines that we did not sing as a part of that hymn is take my lips and let them be filled with messages for thee. Is that what you want? That's what I want. And that's what 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is all about. Us surrendering our lives to the governance of the Spirit so that when we all, whenever we speak, it's always praise, it's always prayer, it's always encouragement, it's always comfort, it's always for the strengthening of the church. So again, friend, it doesn't matter if you can figure all this stuff out about speaking in tongues or prophesying or what words of wisdom or words of knowledge mean. Here's the bottom line. Love. Motivated in love for the church so that whatever we say, in whatever gift we use, it's for the building up and the edifying of Christ's church. May God the Holy Spirit grant not only that desire to us, but the energizing to perform it and to make it happen. For Jesus' sake, amen.